Uh, it's so good to be back. Uh, lots of you I recognize. Some of you, if you don't recognize me, Matt just said, my name's Joshua. I'm from Northview. Uh, I've had the privilege of preaching here a few times, and it's been a, it's been a blessing. Uh, the last time I was here, it was that cooking hot week in the summer. It was boiling overnight, and now all of a sudden I come back and it's freezing. I don't know what, uh, so bring me back one more time, and maybe it's summer, summer again. Let's try that. Um, if you, you're going to want your Bible, so grab it and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, my wife and I are, are currently in the tentative market of looking for a second car. You know, the, we've been living the one car life. It's been great. Uh, but we're looking for a second car. We thought we found one not long ago. And I say we, I mean my wife, because uh, I can't do this whole searching for a car thing. I get frustrated and I have a short attention span. Uh, so she found this car. It looked like it was going to be great. We went to Langley to find it. Uh, and we pull up to this house, and it was a beautiful home. And we thought, this is, a, this is a good sign, right? We're making all the assumptions in our mind that maybe we shouldn't be making, but we're making them. We think, this is a beautiful home. So it, maybe that means that they probably don't mean, need the money. That means they probably took care of their car. It's probably, this is all probably a good sign, good sign. And then we talk with the, with the lady who's sell, selling her car. Uh, and as she's explaining us the situation, flags start to go off in our, in our mind. Uh, first of all, it's not her car. It's her boyfriend's car. Uh, second of all they might not be together much longer. Uh, third of all, she's explaining to us the car and saying, well, actually, uh, he took out the whole console and put in his own thing. It's got this extra base. It's all, it's pretty souped up. It's exciting. But red flags are going off in my mind because I'm thinking, I don't know what that means, but that's a lot. And I don't know how to fix it if it's bad. Uh, and then she, she's just pouring out her life to us, which is great. I mean, we're having a great conversation with her, but she's now telling us that they're actually on the verge of losing the house because they can't make the payments. And I'm thinking, this is red flag after red flag here. You, so you need the money. This is your boyfriend's car. You might break up with him. And he's done a whole lot of stuff to this that I don't know what that means. And so we're taking over a test drive even. And on, in second gear, it's making this weird sound. I don't know cars. It was weird, even to me. Uh, so we come, we come back. We say to her, thanks so much. We'll let you know. We drive away and we say, we're not going to get this car. Because your biggest fear when you're buying a car uh, is the age-old move of the bait and switch, right? You, you never want to settle yourself and say, I'm going to buy this car. You take it home, and all of a sudden, she breaks down a week later, and you have to fix something in the engine that's $1,000, right? That's your biggest fear when you're buying a car, is that bait and switch. And it is the worst feeling when you're baited and switched, right? When you buy something, and you, you're sold this bill of goods, thinking, this is amazing, this is great, and then all of a sudden, a week later, you're like, this is not at all what you sold me. I think a lot of Christians feel that way when we're sold this gospel of Christianity, which is gospel of grace, gospel of grace. And that's true, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. It's free. There's nothing you need to do. Trust in Jesus. And then someone comes to church and the pastor gets up behind the pulpit and finds a text, for example, like the one we're going to read today, that says, you need to abstain from your fleshly passions. You need to have and live a holy life before the world. And suddenly, I think a lot of Christians, a lot of us feel this, this bait and switchy angst in us of, hold on, you keep on telling me it's grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. And it has nothing to do with what I do. It has nothing to do with my works. I've never earned any of this. And now you're telling me I need to live in a certain way. That doesn't add up. And I actually think there might be a bit of a weakness in the way that we share the gospel with people sometimes on that. Is we, we say it's all free. We say, come to Jesus and you'll, your life will get 10 times better. It's going to be amazing. And then they come and they're like, hold on. A, my life is harder. Uh, B, you're still trying to tell me I need to do something. And you keep saying, I don't, I don't get it. 
I think we feel this way. Some of us feel this way. Even as we mature in the faith, we start to feel like it, we, we want to remind ourselves of grace, that it's not about what we do. And yet we constantly come back to the word and it says, well, but a lot of it shows up in what you do. And so our text today uh, is, is 1 Peter 2, just looking at two verses, 11 and 12. And this is really the transition in this book. Every book, mo- most of the letters in the New Testament have this transition moment, right? In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul's just saying, this is all that God has done for you. And then in 4, he says, therefore, live in such a way. In Romans, he goes, 11 verses. This is what God has done. In, verse, in chapter 12, therefore, live in such a way. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And Peter, this is that transition. This is the moment. He has been saying all of this glorious stuff of what God has done for us. You have a living hope because Christ is risen and you're risen with him in this glorious mystery. You're alive because God has made you alive. You you were not a people. This was last week, right? You were once, you were not a people, but now you're a people. You're God's people. Once you you had never received mercy, now you've received mercy. And he's, he's just building up this anticipation of all that God has done for you. And here he makes the shift to say, now in light of all this, here's how you ought to live. In light of all this, this is the conclusion I have for you. And rather than just tell us, then therefore live this way, Paul actually, sorry, Peter actually gives us three more reasons. If, if chapter one through two and a half was not enough of a reason for us to say, okay, maybe there's a reason for me to live holy, and to pursue righteousness, Peter's going to give us three more. So three more reasons why, and I, I, here's what I want to convince you of, that uh, the commands of scripture that tell us that we ought to live in such a way. So here he's going to say, abstain from the passions of your flesh and live holy conduct, right? The, the commands of the, script, of the scripture that say these things are not the tag-ons of Christian faith that say, God's done all this stuff. Now you just got to do something. Here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, you got to be different. Actually, every time we see it in the New Testament, here's what I want to convince you of, is that it is the most natural thing that we would try and desire to abstain from the passions of our flesh, that we would desire to live holy, honorable lives before the world. It's the most natural thing because of what God has done for us, not this tag on that feels a little uncomfortable. It's natural. Here's my three reasons. Here's the three reasons that Peter gives us. First of all, it's natural because you're a stranger to the world. Secondly, because you're the enemy of your sinful passions. And finally, because you're an ambassador of heaven. Three reasons why it's the most natural thing in the world for us to read these verses and think, yeah, I want to do that. Okay? So let's look at these. Let's start by just reading uh, 1 Peter 2, just verses 11 and 12. I'll read them both. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So uh, the two words at the start there that we've actually heard already in Peter, this is kind of a bit of a running theme. You beloved church loved by Christ, you are sojourners and exiles, not words that we use a lot today. Uh, But the word sojourner literally could just be translated stranger. You're you're a stranger and an exile here. And he's meaning that to say you're you're a stranger and an exile to the world. You're you're the people that someone would look at and say, "You, you, you don't fit in here. You don't belong here. And that's actually what Peter's saying. And what's, what's true of a stranger and an exile? Well, well, generally, first of all, strangers tend to stick out, right? Uh, I had a friend in seminary that uh, was actually from Iran. 
and, and when he, he was fleeing his country for persecution of his faith. And he came over, and when he came over, fleeing, fleeing death itself, he came to Canada, and they, wrecked, they looked at him, and they immediately thought he was a terrorist. And they actually put him in prison for a year. This man, desiring to be faithful to Jesus, to flee for his Christian faith, he's thrown in prison because, because he looked like a terrorist. Right? So someone who's a stranger to us immediately sticks out. Right? For him, he felt that practically. He felt that, do I really belong here in Canada? He, he was one of the most humble, gracious men I'd ever known. Shocking just hearing him tell this story because he just felt it was all of grace that he was even in prison in a country other than his own. But he felt that. I'm a stranger here. I mean, I'm an exile from my own country and I don't feel like I really belong here because evidently maybe, maybe they don't want me. Right? That, that strangers stick out. They're, they, they, they're easy to spot in a crowd. Have you ever felt that when you walk into a room of, you know, maybe it's a staff Christmas party or whatever, and you see someone and you just have this sense, maybe, maybe just maybe they're a Christian. Like there's just this, this thing about them, right? It's not necessarily what they do, though that's part of it. It's kind of what they say, though that's part. There's just something about them that sticks out. That's what Peter's saying. You're a stranger, you're in exile. You, you kind of stick out a little bit. And that's actually good. <laughs> it's what you are. But the other thing that's true about stranger in exile is that people who are from other places, right? Um, and again, a stranger in an exile is someone who just lives in a, in a place that's not their home, right? It's, it's not their original home. It's not where they actually belong in one sense. Uh, the other thing that's true about strangers and exiles is that they're always, in a really positive way, trying to bring what's true of their home, the best of it, into the world they now live in, Right? So, for example, uh, at the campus that I'm pastoring uh, down in Abbotsford, we have somebody from the UK. She's amazing. Uh, but she is persistent that French fries are chips. I reject that. They're not. But, she, but she's like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Why are they French fries? Let's just call them chips. And chips, they're crisps, right? Let's just, it's so much clearer. Why do they have to be French? It doesn't make sense. She's trying to bring what she thinks is the best of her culture into a different culture. Is that not true of Christians? Right? So, so here, strangers and exiles in the world. We're strangers and exiles in the world. Why? Because we're citizens of heaven. That's why. We're, we're, we're citizens under the kingdom of God that comes with its own culture, that comes with its own commands, its own laws. And we are constantly living in a world that we look around and say, there's, there's a lot that could be better here. And we're bringing the culture and the kingdom of God into this world. The best of it, which you know, is all of it. That's what we do. That's what Peter's saying. You're a stranger. You're in exile here. As much as this is, feels like on the surface, it doesn't feel like good news because no one wants to look at, no one wants to be looked at and said, listen, you don't belong here, right? How many of us actually have deep wounds in our hearts because someone has said that to us? Parents, friends, coworkers, you don't belong here. No one wants to hear that. But when Peter is saying you're a stranger here in the world, the only way that he can say to you and me that we're strangers and exiles here is if we are no longer strangers to God. There's two options. You can be a stranger to God in the kingdom and a friend of the world, or you can be a friend of God and a stranger to the world. Just let me just show you. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19. Again, in the first three chapters, Paul's saying, this is all that's true. This is what God has done for you. And four, he says, therefore. But here he's in the middle of saying, this is what is true. He says, so then you, church, you are no longer strangers and aliens. 
You're no longer strangers and exiles. Wait, but Peter just said we are. Now, hold on. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here are your options. You can be a stranger to the world or you can be a stranger to God. And Peter's saying, listen, listen, you're no longer a stranger to God. He knows you. You know him. He calls you son and daughter. He calls you friend. You are no longer a stranger to God. And because you're not a stranger to God, you're a stranger to the world. Now, how does this, I'm, I, I started by saying, listen, I'm, I'm trying to prove to you that it's the most natural thing in the world for you to look at these commands, abstain from the passions of the flesh, live, conduct yourselves honorably before the world. That that's an, a natural thing because you're a stranger to the world. I'm not sure I'm making the connection. Well, here, let me help you make the connection. Uh, you remember crossing the border, right? Back in the good old days when you can actually do that. Um, it was, it, there's never a, an easy border crossing. I don't care who you are and what you say. There's never an easy border crossing. I mean, it could be simple, but it's always stressful because there's always something you think could go wrong. They're going to ask you all these questions. Where are you going, Seattle? How long are you going? Three days, I think, right? Where are you coming from, Abbotsford? Why are you going to conference? You have to have all the right answers. No matter what answers you give, no matter if you get all the answers right, inevitably, there's one thing that they will ask from you. And in fact, it's the very first thing you give them when you pull out. It's your passport, right? Because they could look you in the eye and they could say, where are you from? What, what country are you a citizen of? And you could say, Canada. But they will look and say, Pro- prove it, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I would love to believe you, but I need you to prove it. Where's your passport, right? Uh, we as Christians have a passport. We, we have a citizenship. We, we have ID, proof of identification as citizens of heaven. What is that ID? Uh, well, it's not just that you look somebody in the eye and they say, Where, are you a Christian? You say, yes. Because all sorts of people can say that, right? Anybody can say they're a Christian. Well, is it the way we live? Well, in one sense, yeah, kind of. But also, anybody could, there's all sorts of people in the world who live good lives, right? We look and we say, they, they're great people. They're a really good person. Are they a Christian? Well, it's got to be something maybe a little bit deeper than that. The passport for a Christian, your proof of identification as a citizen of heaven is a new heart. This is the only thing. This is the thing that God has done in you that is not true of the rest of the world. He's given you a new heart. Let me show you. Ezekiel chapter 36, 24 to 27. This is the promise God makes to his people, right? He, he promises this. 36, 24 to 27. He says, I will take you from the nations and I will gather you from all the countries where you are strangers in exile. I'm going to pull you back. I'm going to pull you back. I'm going to bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And verse 26 I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commands. This is the promise that God makes to his people. This is how he's gonna solve the problem that he essentially gave to himself when he said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. The problem is, first of all, Abraham is a sinner with a debt that needs to be paid. Second of all, Abraham does wicked things. He has a heart that's prone to it. So God settles the first problem by saying Christ will pay the debt on the cross. And he settles the second problem where we're prone to sin by saying, listen, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to make you right. And I'm actually going to put my spirit in you. That's your passport. It's a new desire. It's a new spirit. It's a new heart. And that new heart 
shows itself in our affection for God. Where once we were strangers to him, now we're friends. Where once we were estranged enemies, in fact, Paul says, now sons and daughters. And the new heart that he gives us, the spirit that dwells in us, turns our affections to him in such a way that we look at these commands, right? Here's what I'm trying to argue. We look at these commands and it's not an unnatural conclusion. If I'm a friend of God, if I'm a son or daughter of God, I want to live like him. I want to honor him. I want to enjoy what I have with him, fellowship with God. And I do that by living out his commands and living apart from the ways of the world and before the world in an honorable way. So evidence number one, reason number one, it's a natural conclusion. You're a stranger to the world. Secondly, you're the enemy of your sinful passions. Uh, We are tempted. (laughs) You'll hear this a lot. Your, Your feelings, your passions, your desires, they're neutral. They're utterly neutral, right? They're not trying to get you to do something you don't want to do. They're not trying to do anything bad to you. They're neutral. That's not what the Bible actually says. The passions that are stained on our hearts because of sin, Peter says, they're your enemy, right? Let, let, me read these, let me read these verses again to us. If I can find, oh, I didn't put a bookmark. Oh, good. <clears throat> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, here we are, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war on your soul. The desires that you have, the passions that you have, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the, the good passions, right? I'm not talking about the things where I, I'm passionate for the Lord. I love singing praises. I love praying. That's not what I'm talking about. The passions of the flesh, and that flesh is the sinful stain on our heart. They're not neutral. They're not out to get what's best for you. They're your enemy. They wage war on your soul. Uh, you remember those moments um, in a movie? There's, a, there's almost one of these moments in every movie. The don't do it moment, right? Where you're looking at the character on the screen and you're thinking, How, don't do it. <laughs> why, why would you even consider this? Don't do it, right? Because to us, we're looking, we're saying, it's so evident that what you're about to do is wrong, right? Easy example, I think we've maybe all seen this movie, The Little Mermaid. How was that for a throwback? I don't know why this came to me as an illustration, but I think it's going to work. Um, you remember the moment, Ariel's, Ariel, she's in love with this man on the land, she, but she wants to talk to him. You know, she's a mermaid, he's a man. How can I go and have a conversation? Well, I need feet. How do I get feet? Well, along comes Ursula, right? The good old lovely Ursula, who, by the way, you just look at her and you know she's bad. Ariel didn't pick that up. But she goes, she has a conversation. Ursula says, hey, listen, you can have feet. I'll give you feet. All you got to do is give me your voice. And we're looking, we're saying, don't do it, Ariel, don't do it. And the reason is because when we recognize that somebody is trying to help you get something that maybe is even a legitimate desire, but to get it through illegitimate means, we know inherently that that person is not for us, they're against us. That's true of our flesh. There are things that your flesh desires that are inherently good. Let me look, say that. That's tricky. That are inherently good. You want fellowship with people. You want intimacy with someone. God made you for that. You want comfort. That's not a bad thing. Why, why is comfort a bad thing? But it will always promise you that through an illegitimate means. There, there's a way for you to get comfort. There's a way for you to get intimacy. There's a way for you to get 
control. And here's how you do it. But it's an illegitimate means. Inherently, we got to recognize that's an enemy. Because there is a legitimate means by which we get all of that, right? Another example, peace, right? We all just want peace. We just want to have a settled heart. Where can we get peace? Where is it free? Christ. Christ is our peace. But the world offers it in a different way. The flesh offers it in a different way. Our flesh is our enemy. It's not for our good. But what are these fleshly passions? We're really tempted when we read abstain from the passions of the flesh. We could be tempted to look and say, well, that's the, that's the really bad stuff, right? The passion, right? I'm going to commit adultery in a fit of passion, right? Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit murder in a fit of passion. That sounds like what he's talking about. That's not what he's, that's not what he's talking about. Galatians 5, uh, Paul gives us a, a list. He says, Here, here's the, the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 to 21. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice, notice actually the opposition here. There's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. You're going to see it. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now here's his list. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, all the way up to this point, we're like, no, 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 totally. That's the big stuff. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that. Things like these. There's a whole lot of other stuff you could put on this list, but here's my basic summary. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Important little note, when he says do such things, all across the New Testament, what they mean is unrepentantly, deliberately practice these things. Not if you stumble into it. Every Christian is going to stumble into these things. It's the stain of sin on our hearts. But deliberately, unrepentantly pressing forward in them. And notice that last warning. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is exactly what your flesh wants. And that kingdom for you to inherit is only yours again if you're a stranger to the world. If you have a new heart. But why does it want that? Why would our flesh, and again, when I'm talking about flesh, I'm not talking about some, you know, parasite that's in you and it's trying to, you know, take over your body. No, no, no. I'm kind of talking about you. Your flesh is the stain of sin on your heart. You want things that you shouldn't want. Why does it, why do we, why does our flesh want to stop us from inheriting the kingdom of God? Why does it want that? Well, why does any, in any movie, in any story, why does anyone want to throw, overthrow a kingdom? Because they want the throne. Sin wants the throne on your life. It's uh, the flesh of our hearts has bought the age-old lie from Genesis 3, right? You remember the serpent comes to, to Eve and says, hey, you know, let's talk about this fruit. Did God really say all that he said you think he said? And then he makes this little promise. Well, you will not surely die when you eat it. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The, the nature of sin on our hearts is that we are always desperately wanting to be on the throne. We want control of the world, right? We want to be able to, to figure out how everything goes because we all in our mind know what's best, right? I mean, obviously, if I was running the world, everything would be smooth. 
we want the throne. We want control. We want power. We want everything that we want. We want it now. We just, we want to be like God. That's our sinful flesh. And again, Peter is saying, listen, your desire to abstain from these things isn't just because that's the right thing to do. No, no, no. You have to know it is waging war on your soul. So it makes perfect sense that your flesh is the enemy of your soul. Your soul, made, your soul being made alive to God, right? Partakers of his kingdom is meant to worship and enjoy him, but your flesh wants you to worship and enjoy it. It's natural for us to look and say, I want to separate myself from that because I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of God. So abstain from the passions of your flesh. The final reason uh, is this, that you're an ambassador of heaven. You're a stranger of the world. You're the enemy of your sinful passions. And finally, you're an ambassador of heaven. Let me read the verses again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? Live honorable lives before the world so that they see your good deeds and will glorify God on the day of visitation. That day of visitation, uh, it's used throughout the scriptures in two ways. It's, it's, on one hand, it's used to refer to the day that God visits us and we receive salvation. Right? We hear the gospel and God visits us and all of a sudden it, it's real to us and we're alive to him. So it could, he, he, he's saying on one hand, quite possibly, he's saying, listen, you live honorable lives before the world so that they see you and then God would visit them. And they glorify him as they repent and believe. But on the other hand, uh, the day of visitation is, is used in reference to the final day when Christ will come again and there will be that final judgment. And it could very well be that Peter is also saying, it could be saying both at the exact same time, that live such good lives so that at the, end of the, at the end of the age, when Christ comes back, they'll stand before him and they'll say, God, you deserve all the glory for the, for the life of this believer that I knew. And I'm a fool for not having seen it for what it was. So that could be one of those two. But notice, notice what he says. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. They speak against you as evildoers. The world is gonna look at us as Christians and, and call us evil. That's what Peter's saying. And the reason he's saying it is because that was happening to them. For example... Uh, early Christians in this day were accused of some pretty big things. First of all, they were accused of being atheists. As crazy as that is, in our day and age, right? We're the, we're the theists and the atheists are out there. No, no, they looked at Christians and said, you're the atheists because there are an innumerable amount of gods out there. And you're saying there's only one. How could you do that? How exclusive, right? You're atheists. You don't believe in God, right? So they're atheists, accused of being evil. Secondly, they were accused of cannibalism. As crazy as that sounds, right? Because what do we do in response to the word? What do we do in celebration of what God has done? We take communion. And what do we call it? The body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And they're hearing of these Christians going, and yet we're going to eat the body and drink the blood. Uh, That sounds a little scary, right? They must be cannibals. Uh, They were also accused of immorality. Because of all this love talk, right? That's all over the Bible. Love, love one another with brotherly affection, we're taught. Sounds a little weird. 
were accused of immorality, accused of, of incest even, because people would get married and say, I love my sister in Christ. Your sister? My wife, my, but my sister in Christ. Like They were accused of immorality. So evildoers was the name of Christians in that day, right? Actually, in the time of this writing, actually just before or just after, there's gonna be this wildfire in Rome, massive fire that uh, happens while Nero is, is in reign. And somehow... The story gets bent and twisted so that the blame falls on the Christians. They did it. They're trying to burn down Rome when probably, we don't know this for sure, but probably Nero started it because he just wanted to tear it down and rebuild it the way he wanted to. He wanted to be God, right? Accused of terrorism even. Is it not true to your experience, to our experience as Christians, that the world looks at us and says, how could you possibly believe that? How evil of you. For example, when we stand for the, for the life of a baby in a womb and they look and say, how could you stand against women's rights? How could you do such an evil thing? Or when we stand behind the scriptures and say, we, we see a biblical picture of marriage between a man and a woman and the world looks and says, how could you be so intolerant? How could you be so evil? Love is love, right? This is the reputation we're gonna have. And yet he's saying it in the midst of, of live honorable lives, live good lives, have good conduct. He's not saying change what you believe. He's saying live a good life. Live honorably before the world. Live to the benefit of your neighbors. But recognize they're gonna call you evil even as you, as you seek to be kind. They're gonna call you evildoers. But also, look what he, how he finishes the sentence. Keep your, keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So notice the subject there. Your good deeds, the world will see your deeds and glorify God. It's not your good deeds and you got a great reputation, the world loves you. How many of us kind of like that a little bit? A little bit. Peter's saying, no, live, live good lives, honorable conduct so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. It's as if they're looking through our lives and seeing God for who he is. And in fact, this is a, this is a glorious thing. I love this when I, when I saw this in scripture in my seminary training. Um, for a second, John 20, 21 to 22. Jesus comes to his disciples. This is just after he's resurrected. Uh, he's seen a few of them, but this is the first time he gathers with them all. And he, his first words to them are, peace be with you. First of all, that's crazy because all of the disciples, remember what they did? Peter denies him, Judas betrays him, and they all ran away. <laughs> left him to just deal with it. And he says, guys, peace be with you. It's done. It's dealt with. Forget it. I'm yours. And then he says this, as the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a crazy, crazy statement. As the father sent me, so I'm sending you. How did, how did the Father send Christ? Why did the Father send Christ? Well, certainly to die for sins on the cross, right? To pay the penalty. Does Christ send us to do that? No, it's done. Totally finished. Why else did the Father send the Son? In Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God and the radiance of his glory. Jesus represented the Father. It was the, the imprint, the, the illustration, the display of the Father. So much so he could look at his disciples and say, you know the Father. And they're like, what? He said, well, because you know me. 
Because you know me, you know the Father. And Jesus is saying, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Why? So that when people will see you, they would know the Father. When they see you, they'll see me. So Peter's saying, listen, live good lives among, among the world so that when people look at your conduct, they glorify God. You are meant, this is right at Genesis 1. You remember what God, how God creates humanity? He says, let us make them in our image. And an image, the reason that you make an image is so that you would learn something that's true of the image of what it's imaging, right? If I show you a picture of my wife, what I want you to see is not just the picture and all the details. I want you to look through the picture and learn something true about her. The reason you and I exist is so that the world would look and say, through our lives, through what they see of us, they would know God. That's why every single one of us exists. And that's why as Christians in particular, we get the privilege of going out into the world so that people would see us and know the Father through us. They would see us and know Christ because they know us and glorify God when he visits them. Is that not a natural reason for you and I to look and say, I want to get rid of my passions. I want to get rid of my, my fleshly desires. And I want to live a good life before the world because the Father who loves me has sent me to love the world so that they would know him. That's the privilege of the Christian life. That's the joy of the Christian life is you get to live out in a much smaller way, but still a glorious way, the radiance of the glory of God to the world. That's what you get to be. Um, how, how many of us uh, as parents, <laughs> us, <clears throat> I'm not a parent. I can't say that. How many parents here? You, you hear the comment from somebody, your kid, man, <laughs> maybe, maybe this is, this is not, you don't feel bad. Uh, man, your kids are so well-behaved. Sorry if that's not you. Um, it's more a comment on the parenting than the kids, isn't it? Right? The way we live out our lives before the world is a comment on what we believe to be true of God. We're saying a lot about him by the way we live. And Peter is saying, live honorable lives so that your father in heaven would be magnified and glorified because of the way you live. So those are three reasons why it's the most natural thing in the world. This is not a tag on. This is not a weird addition to the Christian faith. It's natural for you to look and say, okay, because of what God has done, I want to abstain from the passions of my flesh and I want to live an honorable life. I'm not telling you how to do that yet. In fact, Peter's going to get there. So I'm not going to overstep. But those are three reasons, great reasons why it's natural. Because of what God has done for you. Put away your sinful passions. Live honorable lives before the world. And don't settle for a Christian faith that gives you less than 10,000 reasons to live to the glory of God. Don't settle for that. Don't buy that bait and switch. The Christian faith is one that gives you 10,000 reasons to glorify your Father in heaven. Let me pray for us. God, we're so thankful for your word. And we are uh, abundantly thankful. We want to be abundantly thankful for what you've done in us and through us to, to your glory. God, we want to live out honorable lives. We want to put away the passions of our flesh and we want to enjoy what we have with you. And the, God, the good news that we enjoy is the fellowship that we have with you. We're friends 
we're your sons and daughters. Help us to enjoy that and help us to live it out and say to the world, this is the best thing that could possibly happen to me. So God, thanks for being with us. Would you bless us now as we sing? Would you bless us as we go? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.